Well, it is a joy to be with you in the new year. If you got your Bibles, will you open up with me to Luke? Luke chapter 3, we're making our way through the book of Luke, and we're in a new series, but yet in the same book. So, the, our morning offering is coming to you. Uh, but a couple announcements as you're turning there, Luke chapter 3. Um, hopefully you were able to get the newsletter this week. The newsletter's covering all that's happening. If you weren't able to get the newsletter, uh, hopefully you can check in your junk or your promotion folder on your email, or you haven't signed up with us, you can sign up with us at faithfulbiblechurch.com right at the bottom there and sign up. But let me tell you a couple things that are taking place. January 20th and 21st is kind of where everything kicks back up for the new year. 21st is our community groups. The 20th will be our men's ministry. Uh, and then the following week will be our youth ministry, an opportunity again for the fourth graders through eighth graders somewhere in that age group to come and celebrate and worship the king together on an, a fun Saturday. So all those things are taking place, but you should check in that newsletter to make sure that you're up to date on all the things that are taking place. Our new series, we're just going to walk through the book of Luke. We'll take a little break in the summer, but then pick up the book of Luke again. It's going to be an opportunity for us to see Jesus and as the title says, a kingdom for all people. Our heart this year would that we would be encouraged to go out and to pro proclaim the good news to all that need to hear it. So hopefully as you walk in, we're going to pray through every member of, uh, of our church. We're continuing through that this year. And also, as you drive in through that driveway, you see that big dirt pile over there, an opportunity to pray for those houses coming in, that, that we would be a church, a beacon of hope for all the, all the new community. So our hope this year is that we would be the sent ones, sent out with the encouragement to make more disciples of Jesus Christ. But if you've got your Bibles, here we are, Luke chapter 3. Pick me up in verse 1. Bear with me. I'm not going to read the entire of Luke chapter 3. I'll stop when we get to all those names. But in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euterea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanatius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And catch it, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, not exactly the most encouraging words, but he called them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear f good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd have some questions. The crowd asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. 
And whoever is food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, and we, what are we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. But John answered them, all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Strap of whose sandals I am not unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft will be born with this unquenchable fire. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, uh, who had been reproved by him for the Herodians, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he looked up, uh, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended, up, descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, the real story of Jim and Tammy Baker is one that you could only imagine that the movies could make up. The true story is one full of fur coats, luxury cars, even amusement parks, sin galore. They were caught up in the idea of of having drug abuse and crime and divorce and even adultery. Not exactly what we would expect from the two hosts of the Praise the Lord Club. In fact, what's so shocking about these two is here they came up on stage and they were proclaiming the name of Jesus, but yet as soon as they left the set, they lived a life full of sin and debauchery. What was shocking about their lives was that it was a stumbling block for so many. It was confusing, hard to wrap your mind around. In fact, a woman called into the court to talk to the judge that was presiding over their case. She asked this judge, she says, are you a Christian too? The judge responded, says, I used to be a judge, but now I'll take the fifth. In other words, what the bakers show us is a life of hypocrisy is confusing. It's confusing not only for the one who's living it because it gives them this false sense of security for their eternity, which they do not have, and it's confusing for everybody looking in. Here they are looking in in these lives and they see this doubled standard and instead of their life drawing them closer to Jesus, the life of the hypocrite pushes them farther away. See, the bakers are the definition of what hypocrisy is. Living a life of Jesus by name, but not in likeness. And yet as we open up our text this morning, we're introduced to another group of individuals who are living as followers of God by name, but definitely not in likeness. It's the nation of Israel. Here they were... In so many words, being hypocrites, they were claiming the name of being called children of God, but yet their lifestyle was far from Him. 
And as you just open up the Old Testament, we see warning after warning after warning of God warning His people that they have to get back in line with obedience. And yet the story of the Old Testament, yes, they would get back in line for a while, but then their lives would show off hypocrisy again. In fact, we're reminded of the book of Malachi, which again, God's judgment comes down and gives them a warning that future judgment is going to come if they don't correct their ways, but yet they don't. And what's so shocking to me is after the book of Malachi, we get silence. Silence for 460 years. And in the silence, the people begin to grumble. They begin to have questions. God, where'd you go? God, have you abandoned your children? God, have you given up on your promises? Because our life is not showing goodness in the midst, but actually it's showing a lot of hardship. And there's silence. And there's questions. And yet they keep going, being disobedient for 460 years, living this hypocritical life. In fact, what what they forgot to understand is the same message that Malachi gave them is the same message we'll see in John. That the problem was not God. That the problem was their hypocritical lives. Malachi told them that, hey, it was your part of the bargain that you messed up on, on this covenant. That you were not obedient. So if you wanted to experience God's best in your life, then you have to walk in obedience again. The only problem was, here was the nation, and they weren't doing that. And the reason we know they're not doing that, because what we see in verse 2, we see in verse 2, is he specifically, John picks up this idea of the two high priests. And we know that there is corruption still going on, because he mentions two high priests. We understand there's only supposed to be one. But yet, John writes this idea of, of writing two names, because he wants us to show the corruption. That Caiaphas was the one who was supposed to be the high priest, but his father-in-law, Annas, was actually the one who was ruling with the power. In fact, many scholars tell us that he was like this godfather-like character over the high priesthood of the temple, in which he reigned over generation after generation, all his sons taking place, but yet him being the one who really was ruling. It was corrupt. The high priesthood was full of greed. Caiaphas isn't even off the hook as well because we see he actually is the one who gathers the other elders together to go and plot to kill Jesus Christ. And yet remember, this is the priesthood. These were the ones who were supposed to represent God and show forth his heart to his people. But yet instead, they were marked by sin and greed and hypocrisy. And as you're looking at out on the nation of Israel, yes, calling God by name, but definitely not living Him in likeness. We're shocked by the words found in verse 2 as well, that the word of the Lord came to John. The word of the Lord came to John to be proclaimed to these, this group of hypocrites The word of the Lord came, producing a message of salvation for the very ones who are not following God. And we're shocked and overwhelmed with this grace that God would be so kind and so patient 
and so full of grace that he would bring a message of salvation for the very ones who are claiming him by name but not living him, living a life in likeness to him. In fact, we're caught up in the grace of this passage in two different ways. First of all, that it comes to John in the first place. We overwhelm that John the Baptist would receive this word himself. In fact, we're looking at John, we understand in verse uh, 1 and 2 that Luke just gets done describing the power uh, makers of his day. He tells us about Tyrannius, the one who's ruling, or Tiberius, the one who's ruling over one, and Pontius Pilate, this governor, and he goes throughout the tetrarchs, those who are uh, covering and ruling all the regions. These are the ones with power. These are the ones with influence. So you would think that if God's word was going to come thundering down like this lightning bolt to this earth, that it would first go to the power holders of, of, of that day. But it doesn't. It comes to a man who's not even in the city, but we're told he's in the wilderness. And it comes to a man who's kind of funny, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey, You mean to tell me that this man is going to have the message of salvation and be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah? And we're caught up with the grace that God would even look down at John the Baptist. We've already seen the grace overwhelming on this family with Zacharias being well past his prime and yet being gifted this child, this miraculous birth. And now again, as the word of the Lord comes to John the Baptist to be preached to the nations. We're overwhelmed. In fact, as we look throughout these first couple chapters in the book of Luke, we should be overwhelmed on who God chooses to use time and time again. It's what I call the little people. The people in which the world passes over. The people in which the the world doesn't even think twice about. In fact, I like a liking watching a lot of Netflix films, and as you're watching these films, who takes center stage? Is it not the ones with the power? Is it not the ones with the prestige? But yet it's never the extra who takes center stage. And yet in the book of of Luke, it's almost like the extras are the one who always takes center stage. Again, Zacharias, one who's well past his prime, takes center stage as the word of the Lord comes to him first. And this little teenage girl named Mary, who comes from all places called of Nazareth, in which we say, is anything good ever come from Nazareth? It had a reputation of nothing good coming from this city. And then John the Baptist himself. Again, this man who's wearing camel hair out in the wilderness, getting the privilege to prepare the way for the king of all kings. And isn't it crazy how God continually used the most unworthy individuals to fulfill the most worthy task. We should be overwhelmed by God's grace. But we also see the grace and the reality of who this message comes to. Look back in our passage and notice who this message is actually coming to in verse 7. Luke writes in verse 7, speaking of John, he said, Therefore, go to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is John speaking to the very ones who are coming to be baptized by him. And notice what he says, you brood of vipers. 
Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Not exactly the evangelistic message you would suspect. For one's coming to perform an act of repentance in baptism. But he calls them a brood of vipers. Matthew helps us out to understand who this group actually is. Matthew's gospel tells us it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The, the very hypocrites that represented all of Israel are coming forth and he calls them a brood of vipers. And yet isn't it crazy that this message of salvation is preached to the very hypocrites of the nation of Israel? Isn't it crazy that God would provide a way to repent to a group of individuals that continually were disobedient to his ways? Our God is a gracious, a gracious God. And before we're too hard on them, we understand the hypocrisy of our own lives. In fact, with the New Year comes, New Year's resolutions also come. And there's this desire to change and transform. In fact, in my own pursuit of Jesus, in my own desire to become a better follower of Jesus, you, you have resolutions. My household, I made this resolution this year, and I made the mistake of telling my children. Because my children are very good at reminding me every time I fail to make that resolution. My resolution this year is to not use the word S-T-U-P-I-D. I know there's kids in the room, so this is the word I don't want to use. I, I, I want to I talk about everybody in this God-uplifting way. But at the dinner table, my youngest, she has a way to remind me every time I use this word, Daddy, you, you said it again. And yet, what a gift. Right? What a gift and a reminder how often I actually do need God's grace. At the dinner table, I couldn't even make it through the dinner without having three different reminders. Daddy... And yet imagine, if we had a little girl who walked around with us all the time to point out every time we have a sinful thought, every sinful decision, to remind us how often we actually sin and fall short of God's standard, I think we'd be overwhelmed. Couldn't even make it through a dinner without being reminded over and over again of how desperate I am of God's grace in my life. See, I don't need just this one batch of grace, but I need new grace every day, every hour, every minute, every sec second. And the good news of the gospel is that God's mercy is so fresh and new, and it meets us in our greatest need. In fact, I often, I often try to imagine what God thinks. Have you, you ever imagined what God thinks of his people? That person again is coming back to me. How many times have they repented of the same sin? This person again is going to think that they're the captain of their own soul, the master of their own fate? Really? And if that's what... If I'm God, that's what I'm saying, and thankfully I'm not God. Because God meets us with a different tone. Every time we sin, His grace covers us. 
Every time we mess up, his grace meets us there. His grace never gives up on his children, but it meets us in our greatest need. And if we would just soak up that reality, that every time we mess up, that God's grace is waiting for us there, I think we would be amazed and overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness because this is the gospel. So as we see, John is wanting us to see this amazing grace as it comes to a nation and a people group, all of us, who are in desperate need of a Savior. But as John begins to describe this grace, what he needs us to understand this morning is this gospel grace should transform us, should overwhelm us, should impact every aspect of our life. But what what John needs us to see is that when the gospel grace overwhelms our life, it doesn't just impact us by name, but it transforms us by likeness so that we become children of God in name and in likeness. In fact, as you're looking at our text, notice again what, what John begins to speak. See, in the midst of of our hypocrisy. What does the gospel offer us? It offers us grace, and this grace transforms us. In fact, we see it in our text in two different ways. He uses the word repentance twice. This word repentance really is the word that we need to see about transformation, because what is, what is repentance? It's a transformation of mind that always leads to a transformation of behavior. It's a transformation of our mind that shifts and transforms our behavior, and the behavior is so important. Because what, what John's going to tell us, John the Baptist, is he's going to speak to this idea of that a Christianity, Christianity that only meets us in name is actually no Christianity at all. But if you want gospel assurance for your salvation, it's going to come as it transforms our lifestyle. In fact, notice what he says in verse 8. Catch this first part in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So notice their problem. They thought their biblical assurance of their salvation was coming from their heritage. They thought because we are God's chosen people, we're safe. Our eternity is good. We got Abraham as our father. We're good. We're good. We got the pedigree, we got the family tree all on our side, so this is our biblical assurance of our salvation. And John says, no, that's not how it works. And yet what a good reminder for us that it's not my mama's faith or my grandmama's faith that gets me saved, but it's faith, my faith, turning to Jesus, my Savior, and trusting Him alone. And in their problem here is they're trusting in their family tree, their nation. Hey, we're the people of Israel. We're good. And yet I'm, I'm afraid that many in America are doing the same thing. We're Americans. We're, we're Christian by name. We're good. And yet John tells us that's not biblical assurance of our salvation. In fact, is that not what the book of James says as well? You just look and read this book of James and, and first of all, we clarify what is James talking about in his book in the first place? 
He's not talking about the root of our salvation. Rather, he's talking about the fruits. Or to say it another way, what James is trying to show us is not how we get saved, but what a saved life should look like. And what does James conclude? He says, a faith without works, transformation, fruits, is dead. Say it another way, a faith without works or transformation is no faith at all. And is that not exactly what John the Baptist is saying as well? For again, look at what it says in verse 9. Every tree that therefore that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In essence, the biblical assurance of our salvation again comes from this fruit, this transformation, this, this transformed life. Because what, what, what John needs us to see is that true faith and true repentance cannot just be in name, but it must follow in likeness as well. This means that John the Baptist is calling for all us to be sinless. No. All we have to do is look at the disciples, right? How many times do disciples sin? Often. And a whole bunch. So he's not, he's not calling for sinlessness. But what he is calling, if you just looked over the trajectory of our life, that there should be this upward growth of fruit, of transformation. That when people look at your life, they should be able to say that you are more Christ-like today than you were five years or ten years ago. That they should see this transformation in your life, that you should be bearing more and more fruit each and every year. That you should be pursuing Christ. And yes, there's seasons in which we struggle and we fall, but again, the trajectory of our life should show this upward growth of fruits. But as you can imagine, the people have questions. The people come to John the Baptist, he's describing the salvation, he's describing this idea of not just being followers of God in name, but also in likeness, and they have questions. He begins to un unpack these questions in verses 11 through 14. Verse 10, the people ask, what shall we do? What does this look like? John answers, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And I love the simplicity John the Baptist says Christians should be generous in their giving. Simple. Shouldn't surprise us. We serve a generous God, and should not his children have that same heart of generosity? John the Baptist says yes. He says if you have the money and the ability to give to those in need, you should. Give the ability to need clothes to those who have no clothes, give it. Those who have no food, share. He's saying here, this is what Christian generosity looks like. And as I'm reminded of these words, that we should be generous in our finances and the material things. A reminder of a, a goal a pastor in Raleigh makes. He makes this goal that each and every year that he would give more and more. So he would give more in 2024 than he did in 2023. And when 2025 comes, that he would give more than he did in 2024. And I love this idea because what is it showing? I want to grow in my generosity, but I want to grow in my faith. Because generosity takes faith, does it not? That each time I have open hands and give away that I'm trusting God and having great faith that He is going to provide for my hands again. And yet I'm reminded that this is not the American way. Generosity, 
The American way is to store up a big old closet for ourselves, to have as many toys as we can buy for ourselves. Isn't the, the, the phrase line, work hard so you can play hard? But the Christian works hard so he can give and give and give more away. First idea, he says, Christians should be marked by this life of generosity. You want biblical assurance of your salvation, it's going to come with this generous heart. Secondly, the, we got more questions, though. Now the tax collectors come up to Luke, and they say, what should we do? And notice what he says in verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, simple again. He's saying as you go about your, your, your profession, you need to be fair and just. And reminded, we're reminded that this was not the case for these first century tax collectors. This group was a group that Rome kind of set the standard pretty low, so therefore the tax collectors can come and tax as much as they want, and they would just take off some from the top. And in this corrupt profession, it would be so easy for Luke, John the Baptist just to say, hey, get out of it. Just, just remove yourself. You're going to be a Christian, quit your job, and go get another one, but he doesn't do it, does he? No, instead he says, I need you to transform your job. I, I need you to go about your job in this Christ-like fashion, that you would be generous and fair and just in how you deal with those people. Let the Holy Spirit overwhelm you and transform your job so you can treat other people with fairness. But they got one more question, now the soldiers come up to him. And they ask him, hey, what should we do? And what, is John, or what does John say in return in verse 14? Do not extort money for anyone by threats or false accusation and, and be content with your wages. Tax collectors and the soldiers were about the same. They used their power and their influence to intimidate people to get more riches and food for themselves. John says, I, I don't want you to do that. He says, rather, I need you to do again, treat people with kindness and fairness. Be content with your wages. Trust God in all these things. Again, don't quit your job, but transform it. In essence, notice what he's saying in all of this. That the gospel should transform every aspect of your life. Transform your finances as you're more generous. Transform your job. So this thing is not just us putting on Jesus on a Sunday morning, but it's us transforming every aspect of our life that God would ooze from us. That it transforms us. Not just in name, but in the totality of who we are as individuals. Again, that what he's asking them to do then as they're coming forth in this baptism, he's, he's asking them not to just have this outward baptism of water, but he says, you need to be transformed from the inside out. Well, as you can imagine, now the people are thinking, well, what is, who, who, who's able to be able to, to, to perform this inside cleansing? So they begin to think, maybe this is the Messiah in front of us. Maybe John the Baptist is the one, and, and you see within their hearts this hunger to be saved. And yet John the Baptist turns to this group, says, I'm not the Messiah, but I can definitely point you to the one who is. 
says in verse 16, I baptize, I come baptizing you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap whose sandals I am not unworthy to, uh, to untie, and he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, you want the answer to your hypocrisy? It's Jesus. He can save you from it. You want the answer from the sin and the weight of condemnation upon you? It's Jesus. He can save you from it. You want the answer to, to your search for purpose and meaning in this life? So often we're self-medicating ourselves, looking for hunger. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, hey, we're all in this search and all these things of the world, they cannot fulfill. It should be a sign to you that we're made for something greater, a different world. And John the Baptist says, you're made for Jesus. He's the answer. He's the one who came to save you from your sins. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So this morning, as we talked about this transformed life, it's not us just trying harder. It's not us just making New Year's resolutions on our own power, but it's being dependent on the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. It's Jesus in His grace. It's His grace that begins to move and transform our lives. It's the work of the cross. In fact, I'm reminded of the true story of a church in Florida. Fort Lauderdale, there was this storm coming through, and this storm was, was just ravaging Florida a couple years ago, and power went out, public transformation, transportation stopped. And it was just... Floods beginning to take place. Well, most of the bulk of the storm came on on a Sunday morning, and there was this church right outside of, of, of Fort Lauderdale, First Baptist Church. And as they were meeting like us, lightning struck the church. What was so interesting, though, is the people didn't even know it. They kept on worshiping. After the service, the head of the deacon board came forward and told the pastor, Hey, pastor, we... We just had lightning strike our church. As you can imagine, the pastor was concerned. He said, How, did, did it hurt anybody? Where, where did it hit? How much damage took place? Deacon turned to him and he says, Pastor, I need to tell you it. You know we have this 20-foot cross on our church and the lightning hit the cross. But we put this lightning rod within the cross so that when the lightning hit, as it hits the this lightning rod, yes, it causes great power, but this power goes down and then it's spread out so that our people, they didn't feel a thing. So to answer your question, was there any damage? No, there was no damage at all. The deacon said, in other words, what I need to tell you is the cross did its job. The cross, it did its job. See, the message of John is very clear. John the Baptist came with this gospel message, and he says, because of your sins, God's wrath is going to come down like us, like a, a, a bolt of lightning. But the good news of the gospel is that we, we have this cross that covers us. That those who turn to Jesus in faith, yes, God's wrath comes down, but it hits the cross, and we feel nothing. So as we come to the communion table, this is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the good news of Jesus, that yes, we were hypocrites. 
God's wrath was upon us. But the good news of Jesus is the cross did its work. Jesus' blood made us white as snow. So we come to celebrate. To celebrate this grace that it transforms us, but also moves us to gratitude. That, that as he calls us to remember, if this rememberance doesn't cause me to thank him, then we've done this table all wrong. And I know we make it a, this kind of solemn mood, but this isn't supposed to be a solemn mood meal. This is supposed to be a meal of celebration, of being amazed and moved by the reality of how often we sin and a God whose grace meets us there. So we come. We're going to sing some last songs up here. And we're going to be reminded that we have a Savior who died in our place and took God's wrath and absorbed it himself so that we, we could have the good news of the assurance of our salvation. And it's going to be seen in our transformed lives. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He says, anytime you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. He took the cup. He said, this is a sign of the new covenant. I, I poured out my blood for, for you. In fact, I'm amazed of the sweetness that he would use this vine as a reminder of his blood. That as we take, take that sip and we take the sweetness of the grape, to remind us of the sweetness of the gospel. And we, we should be just full of gratitude and thankfulness. So as we sing these last songs, if the kids get a little wild, it's okay. This is a celebration. We're doing this as a family. This is a family table to remind us that together, together we are the children of God. That we have a big Savior that looked down on us unworthy people and gave us the most worthy task. Go make disciples. Go proclaim this good news. Go show off my goodness to the people. Because he's a gracious and good God. God, I'm thankful. God, we do come with such thankful hearts this morning. And we come as the body of Faithful Bible Church, a family that by your blood you have purchased us, that we would be a city on a hill, a light to all people, that the nations would see the glory of your Son and that they would be a part of this family as well. So God, we're thankful for the communion table. We're thankful that you have died in our place and for our sins. Move your church to greater obedience this year by the power of your spirit, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your glory alone. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.